It's Women's History Month, and this year we want to shed light on a very important figure from history who you may not have heard of, Sappho. Who is Sappho, you ask? Sappho is the first woman in the European literary tradition, one of only a few poets we know from antiquity, and the OG lesbian, or rather, where the modern use of the word lesbian comes from. Introducing Sweet Bitter, an investigative podcast where we delve into the truth and controversy of Sappho, her life, the Isle of Lesbos, and her relevance today. Each episode, we take you through a fragment of Sappho's poetry, life, and legacy. And recently, we've taken an unexpected turn into a huge scandal involving Hobby Lobby, the Museum of the Bible, and an Oxford University papyrologist who fell so far from grace, he was recently arrested. If we've piqued your interest, as I'm sure we have, you can find Sweet Bitter on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year. Zachary Davis. Shane Rathman. Benjamin Jacobs. I'm Eric Marcus. Dan McManamy. Brian Ivory. Rudyard Lynch. Susan Archery. Alex Clifford. B.T. Newberg. I'm David Crowther. And I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content creators. This will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or for our friends across the Atlantic, 3 p.m. London Time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com slash shop. Pontifex is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pontifex. I am Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 96, Pope Stephen III. Or, as we know from the Stephen numbering issue now, Stephen III slash fourth. He is the third of actual Pope Stevens. Strap in for a wild ride, Fry, because things are about to go from zero to a hundred. I know this only because when we released that not great Stephen, elect Stephen, people were like, it's almost time for the crazy Pope. And I was like, oh, thanks, internet. So this is going to go from zero to 100, but the crazy Pope that they're talking about... Not this one. Oh, lovely. They're just... They're real excited about it. And if they're really excited about the crazy Pope, like, I get it. Yes, it is another Stephen. We're getting there. But um, November, maybe? I need them to stop being spoilers. No spoilers on the social media, guys. (laughs) Send me a DM directly. We need Fry to be blind. I mean, I'm sure, honestly, I'm sure this is that particularly crazy, Stephen, is definitely something you've heard about. Probably. Inevitably. But, you know, when it happens, it'll just happen. So, but seriously, you guys, if you're getting real excited about that November-ish. Man, that's so many months. It's February, Lemon. <laughs> it is it is definitely a long time away, but I'm currently about to write that episode, so I know kind of where we are with it. It's coming. 
Anyways, this is not that Stephen. Uh, this is Stephen the Third, and it is going to be crazy for a whole other host of reasons. So let's get into it. Stephen was born in Syracuse in Sicily. Syracuse? Okay. Have you never heard of Syracuse? Isn't that a United States place? Uh, I think that there is a Syracuse somewhere in the States, but... It's in uh, New York. Okay, well, there you go. This is the Syracuse in which it would be named after. So. Ah, there is one in Sicily. That's the one. So that's where he's from. He is from Syracuse in Sicily, not in North America. And his father's name was Olivus or Olibus, depending on what translation you use. And according to the Liber Pontificalis, he also had a brother named John. Now, during the 730s, when he was quite young, Stephen came to Rome. But the Liber Pontificalis describes him as a foundling, so he may have been orphaned and come to be taken in by the church, much like Pope Stephen II and Paul. We don't know what happened to his family between then and now. Ridley? <laughs> Ridley happened to his family? <laughs> Ridley happened to his family. He's having some thoughts. He's like, Syracuse is in New York! We're then told that Pope Gregory III placed him in the Monastery of St. Chrysogenus, where he became a monk. And this is where he starts to build a reputation, which the Liber Pontificalis describes as a man of stamina, learned in the divine scriptures and imbued with the traditions of the church, in keeping to which he was resolute and steadfast. Okay, so he's got stamina for book learning. Stamina starts to become a thing right now in the Liber Pontificalis that they start to, to praise quite a lot. We hear a lot about stamina in the next little bit. That's not the phrase you want. Well, I mean, if you're going to be Pope, I would imagine you need a certain level of stamina, so there's that. So this reputation caught the attention of Pope Zachary, who removed Stephen from the monastery to ordain him as a priest. But Zachary took such a liking to Stephen that he also brought him to the Lateran and gave him a position there. He later would also consecrate Stephen as the cardinal priest for Santa Cecilia, but Stephen would continue to also work in the Lateran, even after the death of Pope Zachary, under Popes Stephen and Paul. And by all accounts, Stephen was an extremely loyal servant of the Popes, and even cared for Paul on his deathbed. The Liber Pontificalis says, But when his predecessor Lord Pope Paul was staying at St. Paul's on account of the sternness of the summer heat, and was there incapacitated by the serious illness which brought his life to an end, this blessed Stephen was constantly at the service of his predecessor as Pope day and night, and never left his bedside until he gave up the ghost. Gave up the ghost? They wrote it on purpose. They did! Who uses that phrasing ever? <laughs> I know, it's, it seems so very modest, but there it is. And so this loyalty to Paul is very important because the end of Paul's papacy had uncovered the beginnings of a major problem that is now about to erupt. You see, there is a major problem with the papal states, and that is that the Pope is now a temporal ruler. And now I hear you saying, we've covered this. Why is this suddenly a problem? Well, this is because the Pope is now a temporal ruler with ruling authority over a large portion of Italy. 
a large portion of Italy that already has established prominent leaders and nobles and societal structure. And that structure had once been the empire, but now these people have a voice and influence in the administration of the region, and suddenly they're about to be ruled again by a pope whose priority is going to be Rome and the church, and who would be elected by Rome and the church. So these these secular rulers who have risen to prominence outside of the structure of the empire in sort of the vacuum that's been left have no role in how the secular administration is going to go. As historian Thomas Hodgkins put it, However the truth might be veiled by the festoons of pious rhetoric, the substantial fact remained that the Bishop of Rome was now virtually king over the central city of the world and over fair domains touching both the Tyrrhene and the Adriatic Seas, and this proud position naturally attracted the ambition of men who for whom the spiritual prerogatives of the successor of St. Peter would have had no fascination. Just some upstarts want to get up in there. Yeah, they want a direct say in who's going to be the next pope because they are ambitious, they have power, they want to maintain their power, and so if this pope is going to be their ruler, they feel that they should have a say in that. And one of these people is the Duke of Nepi, Toto. Paused here, because I expected an Africa joke from you. Um, you know, my brain went Africa, and then it went tiny dog. <laughs> and then it stopped. So information about Toto is a little bit uncertain. Thomas Hodgkin calls him a citizen of doubtful nationality, so he may or may not be a Lombard. But what we do know is that he wasn't really technically a duke, because Nepi was in the Duchy of Rome, but he was essentially a military aristocrat. And Toto is not best pleased with this new pope situation, and when he found out that Paul was ill, he started to march to Rome. Because that's what, that's what you do. His initial plan was to have the ailing pope murdered to force an election. I mean, he's sick. Why are we... Let's just add some death to your death. Well, exactly. He was convinced exactly in that way to wait it out. And sure enough, Pope Paul died soon after on June 28th of 767. And that same day, Toto and his men forced their way into the city and acclaimed Toto's brother, Constantine, as the next pope. Why is there a Constantine? Get out of here. Well, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. And the most problematic thing about this is Constantine is a layman. So for the first time, as our editor of the Liber Pontificalis, Raymond Davis, points out, the first time a lay aristocratic military coup had been carried out by men who knew that to control Rome and the papal states, they had to seize the papacy. So they have decided, ah, well, this is convenient. Pope is dead now. My brother shall be pope. So they marched their new pope to the Lateran and forced a bishop to ordain Constantine to the minor orders, which is, you know, subdeacon, deacon, and priest, and then have him consecrated all at once. Anti-pope. So you can see the problem with this already. This is by no means a regular papal election or a regular pope. But with the threat of Duke Toto and his men on site who were prepared to kill anyone who resisted, 
including actually killing the Duke of Campania who resisted this movement, the majority of the Roman clergy did sign their names in assent to this new pope. And interestingly enough, when they signed their assent to this new pope, Constantine, one of the people who agreed with this was the Stephen we're going to be talking about. In any way that you look at this, this is an outrage, and there were some people who were absolutely not going to let this stand. And this is where we're going to need to introduce two people who are going to be extremely important throughout this episode. So, first we have Christopher, or Christophorus, who was the Primacerius Notarorium. That's a mouthful. It is. It really is. But it basically just means he's the notary slash dignitary of the Roman church. And we also have his son, Sergius, who is the church treasurer. According to Thomas Hodgkin, Christopher as the Primacerius was the person who, according to the customs of the church, should be organizing and presiding over the papal election, and he was one of the three men who would have been in the deputy role during any type of sede vacante. So he's an exceptionally influential person in the church, and his son Sergius, who is the church treasurer. So these two people together are really who should be running these elections. And they are vehemently against this secular imposition. They are not having any of it. The Liber Pontificalis tells us, When Christopher the Primacerius and Counselor witnessed this, in his faithful zeal he and his son Sergius, who was then Sassilarius, would rather have died than see the perpetration of this unholy novelty and wicked presumption on the apostolic see. Every day they wept and lamented, pretending that they would become monks and asking to be released by Constantine. Well, I mean, at least they seem to have a backbone. Oh, they have a backbone. And so Chris and Serge, which I've been calling them because I got really tired of writing out Christopher and Sergius. Chris and Serge. That's who they are now. It just is. So Chris and Serge, they leave the city under the guise that they are retiring to a monastery in Reti. But instead, they absolutely intended to use their influence to rouse up enough support to declare the election of Constantine invalid. But they needed some armed backup if they were going to actually have a chance at this. You know, Duke Toto and his men are still there, and they are still killing people who don't want to accept Constantine as Pope. So they decide to go to the Lombards. Ugh, don't go there. I know, right? These are the same Lombards that are repeatedly making things difficult for the papacy. The enemy of my enemy is a Lombard. That is it. And they actually, surprisingly, managed to convince King Desiderius of the Lombards to provide support for them, and an army was sent with them to force Constantine off the papal throne. But Desiderius seems to have been inspired by this whole premise of a secular leader choosing the Pope. It certainly would benefit him to have a pro-Lombard puppet Pope up there instead, right? Yeah, hmm. mm, they just got over this stuff with the stupid Byzantines. They did, but now he's like, hey, if this duke is going to come in and make his brother pope, I could have a pro-Lombard pope. So when he sends this army with Chris and Serge, he also sends along an envoy, a priest called Waldepert, with instructions to find an appropriate candidate that could serve him 
rather than Duke Toto, and make that man pope when Constantine was forced out. I mean, clearly Desiderius was not all that concerned with the proper election that Chris and Serge wanted, but this should surprise no one at all. It is a Lombard. But the only people who seem to not know that this is what Desiderius would do was Christopher and Sergius, and they led the Lombard troops to Rome. And when they arrived, the Lombards storm in, they kill Duke Toto, just straight out, dead. Toto's other brother, Pacifus, escapes and runs to tell Constantine, the Pope brother, and the two fled, but they are also apprehended. It all just happens very quickly. Suddenly, murder, okay, the Pope has run away. And then Desiderius, through Waldepert, install their own man with a similarly coerced election. And this poor man was a monk named Philip. And they basically just went to a monastery, pulled Philip out, and declared that he was going to be Pope, and coerced with threats a small group of clerics to consecrate him. Interesting choice. So Chris and Serge are perplexed, right? They had wanted to remove Constantine to make way for a proper election, and now they have this monk from Desiderius who's been forced up to be Pope instead. So they're mad, and they declaratively refuse to recognize Philip, and they continue on with their plan to have a proper election. So they basically just ignore this man, this poor monk who's been told, you're Pope now, until he decides to go home. <laughs> he was met at the Lateran Basilica, where papal vestments were removed from him, and they just sent him back to his monastery. Never mind. We're now two anti-popes into this whole thing, and it's just been chaos. Barely. None of these anti-popes have done anything. They've just been like, I'm here, I guess. I guess. Well, we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail on Patreon, because there's more there. But finally, Chris and Serge were able to gather the Roman clergy, the laity, and any remaining armed forces at the Church of St. Adrian on August 1st, 768, to witness the canonical election of a pope. As the Liber Pontificalis says, Christopher gathered all the sacerdotes, the chief clergy, the militia's chief officers, the whole army, the honorable citizens, and the whole assembly of the Roman people from greatest to least at the three fates. They deliberated, and with absolute and total unanimity, they all agreed on Holy Stephen. So we're finally... We're here now. He was chosen to be Pope, but he was not present, so the electors went to the Santa Cecilia and informed Stephen of his election and brought him to the Lateran Palace. Hey bro, you're Pope now. Hey, you. You're the guy we've all agreed on now, and we've done it properly, so this one's going to stick. And after the election, before there was a consecration for Stephen, Constantine was brought out before the clergy of Rome, and as the Liber Pontificalis tells us, the holy canons were read out, and so he was deposed. Marianus the subdeacon came forward, removed the stole from his neck, threw it at his feet, and then cut off his papal shoes. Cut his shoes? Those are expensive. Yeah, well, he's dishonored the papacy, so they cut the shoes from his feet. They then tie weights to his feet and parade him through the streets on a horse in a saddle designed for a woman, quote-unquote. So, like, a side saddle? I mean, they're being rude about it. 
they are being rude about it. They parade him and humiliate him down the street, and they shut him up in the Cell Nova Monastery. Goodbye, you. So that's that's basically where it's going with that. And so all is done and settled. Stephen is now Pope. And then all hell breaks loose. Lovely. <laughs> Apparently, deposing and stripping the anti-pope of his vestments was not far enough, and Chris and Serge's faction really, really wanted to make their point. And so there is an immediate explosion of retributive violence against anyone who supported the anti-pope Constantine. But that's also the pope. He did sign his name to the ascent, but they recognized that those people were, like, on thread of their lives. These are all the people who, like supported him oh actually liked it and this is really interesting too because the liber pontificalis really wants to absolve chris and serge of responsibility for this violence so it describes the perpetrators as quote some perverted individuals men who do not keep their eyes on god and have no fear of the dreadful judgment to come put up to it by some plague-ridden instigators of evil who'd got their just desserts from the lord so Bad people came and did this, and it's not Chris and Serge's fault. <laughs> Some bad people. Chris and Serge didn't say things that maybe caused them to think that they should do this at all. No. All themselves. So what exactly happened was that people were openly attacked on the streets and mutilated. No. A bishop called Theodore, who had acted as the vice dominus, which is the right-hand man, to anti-pope Constantine, was both blinded and had his tongue cut out, and then was imprisoned and given no food or water until he died. Constantine's other brother, Passivus, was blinded and shoved in a monastery, and remember, of course, at this point, his other brother, Toto, has already been killed. Waldepert, who had been responsible for the Lombard antipope Philip, was also blinded and then either straight up murdered or he died of his injuries. And to be clear, these are all described as eyes gouged out blindings. These are not, you know, they're not the vinegar blindings. These are like, let's pop those suckers right out of your face type thing. There was even a town, Alatri, which had revolted in favor of Constantine remaining pope. And key members of the city were also subject to the gouging of eyes and tongues. You know what? If I heard that there was just a mob doing eye gouging, I would leave. That's probably a good plan. But one question looms very large in the wake of all this. How responsible is Pope Stephen in all of this violence? Is he giving orders to, to retaliate against these people? Is he complicit, or is all of this happening without his involvement? This is something we're going to discuss in Fructus Prohibitum. And on that note, again, I want to put it out there that, remember, we cover all of our antipopes on Patreon, so there will be episodes for Constantine and Philip with a lot more detail, because it sounds very short, and Philip is very short, but Constantine was actually antipope for quite a while. This is happening quite slowly. But anyways, things eventually do start to settle down, and Stephen is able to just be Pope, now with Chris and Serge as his main advisors. And right away, he writes to the Franks to clarify his canonical election and ask them to send bishops to take part in a council that he plans to hold. And it was time for him to just settle down and organize, because a council would also help to legitimize his papacy straight away. 
So this is going to be the Lateran Council of 769. The council was held in the Lateran Basilica starting on April 12th, with four sessions lasting four days. It was attended by 52 bishops, including the 12 bishops sent from Francia, Italian bishops from Tuscany and Campania, a large portion of Rome's clergy, and even the odd layman. So the council itself was sort of a catch-all to deal with several things, including the chaos of the papal election and anti-papacy of Constantine, and, you know, for good measure, iconoclasm. So, the first two sessions of the council deal with the anti-papacy of Constantine. After all, he had been pope for almost a year, and during that time he'd issued decrees and he had held holy ordinations, and this has to be rectified, right? So the anti-pope was brought into the council from his monastic cell where he had been kept for the last eight months and interrogated for a justification for his papacy. Why did you do these papal things? Why you a pope, man? Why you do that? And at first, Constantine confesses himself as a victim of his brother Toto's ambitions and says that he was forced into the pontificate and begged the council to have mercy on him and that he had sins more than sands in the sea, which is lovely and poetic. However, when he was brought back for the second council session, it seems that he had a complete change of heart, and he retracted his confession, and he decides that he's going to argue that his election was fine, it had been no different than any other, and that lay people had succeeded in clerical elections before, like Archbishop Sergius in Ravenna that we talked about not too long ago, and Stephanus, the bishop of Naples. But this incensed the attendants at the council, and Constantine was excommunicated on the spot. How dare you have receipts? Yeah, how dare you try to think that you were in the right and have examples that this has happened before? How dare you? So all of his ordinations, acts, and rulings were declared invalid, all of his writings were burned, all of his clerical appointments were rolled back, and then he was beaten and his tongue was cut out before he was dragged back to his monastic cell. You're so mean to this man. From Thomas Hodgkin, we get this description. When Constantine urged these exploits in mitigation for his offense, the whole assembly was filled with fury. Unmoved to pity by the vacant gaze of those poor sightless eyes, they buffeted him on the face. They forced him to bow his neck and finally thrust him out of the church. Then, in a show of collective unity, all of the clerics prostrated themselves to sing the Kyrie Eleison as a declaration of penance for having accepted Holy Communion from Constantine in the past. So, and none of this was Stephen's. As far as we know, we don't know. We Obviously, he's the one who held this council, and he is the one who wanted to set the situation right, but there is a lot of blame shifting in the way that this is, is portrayed, right? It's, it's the entire audience was incensed by his justification of himself. Everyone beat this man. It's not the Pope declared him. The Pope said beat this man. Yeah, exactly, which occasionally happens, but you know. So the third session of the council was designed to ensure that what happened with Antipope Constantine didn't happen again by enacting new rules and restrictions on papal elections. And naturally, this was entirely geared towards keeping the secular aristocracy out. This is very important. This becomes a long-standing issue. 
So first, the council decreed that a layman could not be elected as a pope. Only members of the clergy who had surpassed minor orders, aka only cardinal deacons or priests, were eligible for election. Second, the council decreed that lay people were prohibited from the election process and only clerics could vote for the new pope. Soldiers or militiamen were forbidden from being present at the election at all, bar none. And the only part of the laity that could now participate was in the escorting of a newly elected pope to the Lateran Palace. So they can be part of the parade, but they get no say. The fourth session of the council was yet another declaration in favor of the veneration of icons, rejecting iconoclasm of Emperor Constantine the Fifth Pooface in the East, and it began with the evaluations of the writing of the Church Fathers, seeking clarity and justification for icons, as many pro-icon councils had done before, and confirmed permission for icon veneration as declared in the Roman Council of 731. Very standard stuff. But more importantly, this session also anathematized the acts of another council, which was the Council of Hyeria from 754. That council had been called by the emperor as an attempt to make an ecumenical council to validate his iconoclast sentiments, but the council was literally as far from ecumenical as it could have possibly be. First of all, there was not a single patriarch from any of the five major sees in attendance, not even Constantinople, because it was currently vacant after the death of its bishop Anastasius. Not Constantinople, which is the one you would think would be there. Not Rome, obviously. And then Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria weren't in attendance as those areas were still under Muslim control. And so they're not invited, just like Rome had not been invited. So this is why this council is often disparagingly called the Headless Council. With no actual representation, the council had, shocker, supported the emperor's every whim, supporting iconoclasm and condemning all religious use of iconography. So now, this new council, the Lateran Council, condemned and anathematized the rulings of the Hyaria Council and condemned the ongoing iconoclasm. Just the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. You gotta say it. You gotta say whether you are for or against the iconoclasm. How you feel about them lambs. How you feel about them lambs. And I mean, you can understand why, because if you're not really explicit about how you feel about these things, you could be the next Pope Honorius. Fair. When the council was then concluded, a barefoot procession was held from the Lateran to St. Peter's, where the canons and anathemas were declared out loud and distributed for all to see. And for the moment, this council would definitely be considered a win to getting things back on track for the church. The election of the pope would remain in the sphere of the clerical bureaucracy, and the nobles and the military would not be able to intervene or usurp control within the church. But just as before, the canons of this council has done nothing for the actual concerns held by the rest of the secular population, who are still directly impacted by the existence of the papal states. Although the intentions for the defense of the church are good, and they are validated here in Rome, the most immediate outcome of the new regulations was making tensions worse between Rome's clerics and the secular and military aristocracy. And this is going to have long-term consequences. These regulations are going to be short-lived, ignored, and 
disregarded. Good job, everybody. A plus. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you understand. It, 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 both sides have some valid point here, but where it ends up going from this point out because of this secular interference is where we're going to get the pornocracy. So, Did you say great. pornocracy? That is what I said. All right. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Whatever the hell that means. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit of sizzle for you later. <laughs> but things were still not all settled and well after this, because right away in 770, Desiderius decides he's going to make trouble for the Pope again. These Lombards. Although he had supported Chris and Serge in their attempts to depose Constantine from the papacy, any goodwill that might have been formed between the Pope and the Lombard king had evaporated the minute that his agent priest, Waldepert, was murdered, and his candidate as Pope, Philip, was rejected. He's not happy. And I mean, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, but he's not happy. So at this point, he does two things. The first was to find a new ally in Rome. And he finds Paul Afayarta, the papal chamberlain. This is not super important for this moment, but it will be as things go on. So remember him. Paul the Farty. Paul the Farty. I want to call him that because I really don't like this man. But that's Paul Afayarta. Yeah, Paul the Farty. He has now been bought into allying with the Lombard king. The second thing that Desiderius did was to stir up a bunch of trouble in Ravenna. So after the Archbishop of Ravenna, Sergius, had died, the clergy had elected the Archdeacon Leo to replace him. However, much like Rome, the local aristocracy in Ravenna were keen to have a larger say in the governance of the church, since Ravenna was now part of the Papal States. And so the Duke of Rimini, Maurice, supported by King Desiderius, decides to imprison Leo, the new bishop, and installs a layman called Michael, who was a scrinarius or a carpenter, in his stead to be archbishop. So the new bishop, the duke, and the Ravenese aristocracies wrote to the pope, openly offering bribes to the pope to consecrate Michael as the new bishop. But of course, Stephen is having none of this and refuses to consecrate Michael because he had just had a whole council about keeping lay people out of church elections. So he's not about to accept this on any level, right? It's just not going to happen. Did you not read the canons of the council? Don't do this thing. <laughs> so he writes back to Michael, instructing him to renounce any claim on the bishopric at once and to release the rightly elected Leo. Michael refused, and so the Pope issues an excommunication. However, this problem was not going to be immediately solved, since Michael had the backing of the Duke and the King Desiderius. So this struggle is going to go on for a, over a year before Michael was arrested and sent to Rome, quote, in chains, and Leo was reinstated as part of another resolution that we're going to talk about in a moment. This is an important and interesting moment, and historian Thomas F.X. Noble in Republic of St. Peter comments on the similarity of what happened in Ravenna to what happened in Rome, demonstrating this 
unintended consequence of the creation of the Papal States and how it stretches so much further than anybody would have initially thought. He says, Rome and Ravenna had roughly similar historical developments during the last century. In both cities, there were military and clerical elites whose interests converged in the face of Lombard or Byzantine hostilities, but who now found themselves with real or potential external threats much diminished in, in confrontation with one another. In each city, the immediate aftermath of the demise of the Byzantine rule had been an ascendancy of the clerical order, and now in both, the lay order is asserting itself. So this is something we have to keep in mind, because it's going to continue and continue to be a theme in this area. This is going to be a problem for so long. Is it Easter again? Yeah, you know what? It's probably gonna just completely eclipse Easter in terms of long-standing conflicts. Lovely. But let's divert from there now and have a look at the Pope's good friends, the Franks. Hot dogs. The hot dogs, because it turns out things are no longer steady and secure in Francia either, which is definitely going to have an impact on what went down with the papacy. As we said, when Stephen was set and consecrated as new pope, he wrote to Pepin. But by the time the letter arrived, Pepin, king of the Franks, has died in Saint-Denis on a journey home from a military campaign in Aquitaine. So, Pepin was succeeded by his two sons, Carloman and Charlemagne. Carl and Charles. Importantly, they succeeded their father with, quote, divine assent, as remember, they too had been anointed by Pope Stephen II when their father was consecrated as the rightful dynastic heirs. This should start to sound a little bit like the divine right of kings that we're going to see in France. This is kind of where it starts. And following Salic law, which is the traditional Frankish law code dating back to the first Merovingian king, Clovis, the kingdom was now split between the two heirs, who were expected to be co-rulers. It seems to fly in the face of the goals of Charles Martel and Pepin to then split the kingdom, but it's a precedent that's been established long before the Carolingians and maintained by the Frankish General Assembly, who consented to the kingship of Charles and Carl, so it happens. But like you said, what happens when you split a kingdom for two heirs? Naturally, they start to hate each other. They can't share. They want the whole Lego box. That is exactly it. And that's what happens here, because both Charlemagne and Carloman saw themselves as the true heir of their father. And both of them kind of have a point. You know, usually we, we're so, so entrenched with this idea of firstborn son, right? But Charlemagne is the firstborn son, but he was born before his parents were married. So Carloman is the legitimate son. Oh no, poor baby. Yeah, so they both have basically an equal claim to this. And in Salic law, they both get a half. And so they become rivals. And this instability does not bode well for the papacy at all, although it seemed that both Carloman and Charlemagne were intended to continue their alliance with the papacy forged by their father. Both of them are significantly more concerned with stabilizing their hold on their own kingdoms than they are about protecting the Pope and the Papal States. Pope who? Yeah, um, I now have to protect this from my brother who wants it, so figure it out. 
And one thing that was particularly concerning for the Pope as these Frankish kings try to shore themselves up against one another was that they both decide to try and pursue an alliance with the Lombards. Of course, King Desiderius jumps at the opportunity to use himself as a political wedge between the Franks and the Pope, right? He's mad at the papacy. He is so mad at the papacy, and now he has the perfect opportunity to make himself stronger, get a good alliance, and screw over the Pope at the same time. Beautiful in his eyes. So Pope Stephen starts to sweat because Desiderius is still very much having designs on expanding the Lombard kingdom into the newly established papal states. And he worried that if it benefited the Franks more to hand territory over to the Lombards, the Pope might be cast aside. And Stephen was fairly desperate to ensure that this didn't happen. So he tried to make himself useful to the Franks so that they would continue to see the value in prioritizing their relationship with the Papal States. He even worked to try and facilitate a reconciliation between the two kings, all the while reminding them to honor the agreements made by their father, right? Like, ooh, let's, you boys, you're such, such wonderful representations of your father. You remember your father made this wonderful deal with me. Let's just bring everybody together. You get along. Remember that deal your father made with me? Ah, you're feeling good? Ugh. It's just trying so hard. Disgusting. So Stephen was probably feeling a bit more secure when in 770, a very important delegation was sent from the Franks to the Lombards, including Bertrada of Laon, who is Pepin's widow, and the mother of Carloman and Charlemagne. This is a very heavy-hitting delegation. Surely by bringing the big guns, this would ensure a peaceful agreement between Desiderius and the Frankish kings, protecting the papal states in the process. And that certainly was part of the outcome, including an agreement in which Desiderius ceded some additional territory in Benevento that he'd never given back to the Pope. It's all starting to look a little better. They're also able to negotiate to bring Ravenna into proper obedience to the Apostolic See and sent a Frankish official into Ravenna to arrest Michael and bring him to Rome, to arrest Michael and bring him to Rome so that Leo could properly be archbishop there. However, another development came out of this negotiation that the Pope was absolutely not happy about. You see, Bertrada had negotiated with King Desiderius to arrange a marriage between his daughter, Desiderata, and one of the Frankish kings, and potentially even a second marriage between her daughter Gisela to Desiderius' son, Adalgis, but that never ended up happening. The Pope hates this? Yeah, oh, he hates it. Because apparently Bertrada did not see the wisdom in perpetuating a relationship with the Papal States with all the cost of time and resources. You can't marry... No, he, she wants Desiderius' daughter to marry one of her sons, Carloman or Charlemagne. So although she had achieved some positive outcomes for the Pope, she wasn't prepared to sacrifice the opportunity to draw the Lombards in closer as well. And this is, like we've said, a major, major problem for the Pope. Like, huge. Which alliance is a king gonna favor? That of his wife's family? Or the one of the Pope who keeps begging for help? You know, the wife's family. Every time. Every time. 
But even worse than that, and more glaring to the Pope who's really concerned about this, both Charlemagne and Carloman are already married. <gasps> you can't get remarried. No, they're already married. Illegal. Charlemagne's marriage to Himmeltrude is debated and unclear and generally called a concubinage or a friedelehe, which is a quasi-marriage. But to the Pope, it's very real. Like, a marriage is a marriage is a marriage. So this is not looking good. And Stephen wrote to Carloman and Charlemagne and openly protested against the marriage alliance, citing canon law against the dissolution of marriage, and in vehement language denounced the Lombards as unworthy for such a close alliance. And I'm going to quote for you Stephen's letter as it's presented in Horace K. Mann's book, Popes in the Carolingian Empire. You who are already by the will of God and the commands of your father lawfully married to noble wives of your own nation, whom you are bound to cherish. And certainly it is not lawful for you to put away the wives you have and marry others, or ally yourselves in marriage with a foreign people, a thing never done by any of your ancestors. It is wicked of you even to entertain the thought of marrying again when you are already married. You ought not to act thus who profess to follow the law of God, and punish others to prevent men acting in this unlawful manner. Such things do the heathen, but they ought not to be done by you who are Christians, a holy people, and a kingly priesthood. O most excellent sons and mighty knights, that your illustrious Frankish race, which shines with supreme above all other nations, and that most noble royal line of yours, should be polluted, perish the thought, by union with the perfidious and foully stinking race of the Lombards, which is never reckoned in the number of the nations, and from which it is certain that the tribe of lepers hath sprung. No one Rude. in the possession of his senses would ever suspect that renowned kings would entangle themselves in such hateful and abominable contagion. For what fellowship hath light with darkness? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? You have promised firm and lasting friendship with St. Peter's successors. Their enemies were to be your enemies, their friends, your friends. Wherefore, the blessed Peter, Prince of the Apostles, who received the keys of the kingdom of heaven by the Lord, adjures you with my unhappy mouth. Man, he had me in the first half, like, don't get remarried again, that's rude. And then he was like, they gross. Why you gotta be this way? Foully stinking rice. For which it is certain the tribe of lepers hath sprung. <laughs> it's real bad. You maybe went a little too far. A little far, yeah. It's kind of gross. But uh, it turns out that neither Charlemagne nor Carloman were moved by the Pope's sentiment. And in the same year, Charlemagne put aside his first wife, or maybe not wife, Himmeltrude, and married Desiderata. Now... The worst part of this, the salt in the wound, is that this marriage wouldn't last either and would be annulled the following year, with Charlemagne repudiating Desiderata, but you can imagine how Pope Stephen was feeling about this. Very bad. Oh, so mad. How dare. And he's not about to feel any better, because almost immediately after this alliance was cemented, Desiderius showed up outside the walls of Rome with an army. He claimed to be on pilgrimage and wanted to pray at St. Peter's, 
but Chris and Serge closed the gates against him. Who needs an army for pilgrimage? This doesn't look like a pilgrimage. It's not looking good. And Chris and Serge are like, hey, mm, dangerous. They close the gate. The king demanded to speak to Pope Stephen at the gates, and the Pope goes to him. Yet the Lombards king's arrival also suited an entirely different purpose. And the Pope coming to Desiderius served as the perfect distraction for the Lombard king's ally, Paul Efriarta, Paul the Farty, for the whole duration that Stephen was protesting the Lombard-Frank alliance, Paul had been at work spreading rumors about Chris and Serge. It would benefit Afayarda and Desiderius to have Chris and Serge out of the picture. Well, I mean, yeah. They are the most influential anti-Lombard voices in the city. They would be silenced, and it cleared the way for Paul in his ambitions to be the next pope, because Paul the Farty absolutely wants to be pope. He had been planting doubts with Pope Stephen, and throughout the papal court, that Chris and Serge had been plotting against the pope, basically. Hey, your closest advisors, they want to kill you, and um, they're going to do it soon. So now, while the pope was tied up negotiating with Desiderius at the gates of Rome, Paul is rousing up a mob to go after Chris and Serge. And I mean, quite literally, like, let's go kill these guys now. But as soon as it came to a confrontation, Chris and Serge and their supporters held the advantage fairly quickly, and the tides were turned, which forced Afayarda to retreat into the Lateran Palace. So he's running for his life now. Hey, I was going to kill you, and now you're going to kill me. He's running for his life. And this is the exact moment that Pope Stephen returns to the Lateran and finds it in chaos. Thank God he didn't die. I thought you were going to say he was going to die. Oh, this not is the yet. exact no. moment Pope Stephen dies. Oh, God, that would have been horrible. But he's literally, like, walking in the door of the Basilica of St. Theodore, and he runs smack dab into Afayarda, who's running for his life, being chased by Christopher and the supporters. So just it's just that walking with a pizza meme. Exactly, yes. It's exactly it. And considering the rumors that had been spread about Chris and Serge planning some sort of coup, and now Paul's running for his life, it looks bad, right? This is the worst possible moment for the Pope to walk in. Even though the attempt initially had been on Chris and Serge, it looks so bad. And Stephen is livid, and he demands that everybody stop what they're doing immediately. Chris and Serge are ordered not to harm Paul. But Christopher would not be calm until the Pope told him every detail of his negotiation with Desiderius and promised that he didn't have designs to turn him over to the Lombards. Because now Chris has to be really suspicious of the Pope. Hey, you just went and made a deal with the people I'm so against. Please tell me what you've decided. But this whole situation and the potential violence that could have erupted made the Pope extremely uneasy. He might have thought that Chris and Serge were now a threat to him. That is what it looked like. It does look that way. Or perhaps, he, even if he didn't believe that, he thought that this was as good a time as any to break free of them. So the Pope changes tactics and turns back to the Lombard king. 
He met Desiderius at St. Peter's, which at this time, still outside the walls of the city, and he negotiates for real. And a deal was struck over the tomb of St. Peter, which ensured the Pope's safety and returned Papal States land, but only if Stephen handed over Chris and Serge to the Lombards. Oh no, Chris and Serge, you did so well. They did so well, but it's not, it's falling apart. It's not meant to be. So Stephen sends a summons to Chris and Serge and gave them two options. Basically, leave the city and enter a monastery or come to me right now. And satisfied, Desiderius orders the Lombard supporting parties inside the walls and Paul Lafriarda and his men not to fight, just to simply expel those two men from the city. So even if you see them and they're coming, don't kill them. They're supposed to leave anyways. Which is unfortunate because Chris and Serge then hear both messages and they realize that there's definitely something being plotted, right? The Pope has now summoned them And the Lombard king saying, oh no, don't hurt them yet. It's all just falling apart. So they become paranoid. Uh, yeah, I would too. Especially when all of their support seems to melt away into the background now. And so because they're faced with no other choice, they they leave the city. But they don't leave for long. And they return the next day to communicate with Pope Stephen, only to be immediately apprehended by the Lombards. When Stephen tried to arrange for a safe release of the two, like, hey, let's just stick with exile, Desiderius had other plans entirely, and both men were blinded and thrown into a prison cell at the Lateran, where Chris died three days later from his injuries. That's not great. No. And it doesn't look great on Stephen, either. And it particularly doesn't look good on Stephen, who's just made this deal with Desiderius, when Desiderius then forces him into the Lateran and locks him in the papal apartments and holds him hostage. So now Desiderius has the Pope right where he wants him, without his two most influential supporters. Not good. So Desiderius then demands that Pope Stephen write a letter to Charlemagne. The letter, clearly written under duress, condemns Chris and Serge as being complicit in a plot with Carloman to kill the Pope, and that his Quote, most excellent son Desiderius had come to the Pope's aid, saving him from the conspirators. And also good news, because Desiderius had agreed to restore all the lands to the Pope that had any claims of being papal patrimony. Note how, in the content of this letter, the Pope has gone from calling the Lombards a foully stinking race to a most excellent son. It seems like it was, what would you write to know that I was captured and writing against my will? And this is it. That's exactly it. After writing the letter, Pope Stephen was hoping that he and Desiderius would come to some sort of accord, but Desiderius essentially laughed in his face and told the Pope he was better off now, and if he wasn't appreciative, it wouldn't be long before Carloman, who was an ally of Chris and Serge, would be coming looking for retribution for what happened, and that Desiderius would just hand him over. He is alleged to have said, Be content that I removed Christophorus and Sergius, who were ruling you out of your way, and ask not for rights. Besides, if I do not continue to help you, great trouble will befall you, for Carloman, king of the Franks, is a friend of Christopher and Sergius, and will be wishful to come to Rome and seize you. The Pope is now screwed. Of course, this never came to fruition, because by this point, Carloman had died. 
due allegedly to a severe nosebleed. What? Yeah. Okay. This also means that Charlemagne has absorbed all of his brother's kingdom, and he completely disregarded any claims of Carloman's sons, and his wife went into refuge in the Lombard kingdom. So Charlemagne just went, mine now! <laughs> Goodbye! Get out of here! All of mine. At least in that way, the Pope was able to breathe easy. And now that Chris and Serge were gone, who does the Pope turn to as his new advisor? Paul the Farty. You got it. Got it in one. So satisfied that he'd come out on top, Desiderius leaves Rome. But he wasn't really in a mind to make things easier for Stephen now, and decides he's gonna stir the pot again, because this is what he loves to do. Just how can I harass the Pope forever? So, this time, he did it in Istria. Remember how we've constantly come back to the divisions and ongoing tensions between Aquileia and Grado? Sorta. It's been going on for so long with the two bishops. They're always fighting over jurisdiction. The bishops don't know who's in charge. Yeah, exactly. We most recently discussed it in Gregory II's episode, which is episode 91. In 771, Desiderius moves troops into Istria and pushed the bishops of the region to reject the bishop of Grado in favor of the bishop of Aquileia because the bishop of Aquileia was still firmly vested in Lombard control. Of course, this absolutely incensed the Pope, who wrote to the bishops, who rightly owed obedience to the bishop of Grado, and threatened them with excommunication if they did not return to their traditional adherents. He also offered the Bishop of Grado, John, armed support if needed. So he's mad now, and he's like, I am going to come at you, Desiderius, every way that I can. But of course, Desiderius' troops are going to make this difficult, and they impede any activity that the church wanted to have in Grado by just occupying their land. Not a whole lot comes of that, and nothing really manifests in terms of armed support for that poor bishop. And part of the reason that this does not manifest any such way is because Pope Stephen fell ill at the end of January of 772, and it was soon very clear that he was not going to recover. So guess who takes full advantage of this? Paul the Farty. Paul the Farty got it in one. <laughs> he absolutely wanted to set the stage to either become the next pope or be in charge of who would be the next pope so that he could be the power behind the pope. So he quickly took the opportunity to imprison and exile any prominent noble or cleric who didn't openly support him. And he also seized the opportunity to have his last rival, the blinded Sergius, who was still in his monastic cell, strangled to death. Mm. Which is really weird, too, because according to the Liber Fontificalis, the one who helps Paul the Farty make sure that Sergius is strangled to death is... Pope Stephen's brother, John. Oh, what are you doing? Yeah, I, there's no further documentation about this, but it's there, so. And of course, there was no time for the ailing Pope to respond to this because he dies on February 1st, and he was buried in the atrium of old St. Peter's, tomb destroyed for new St. Peter's. As usual. It's pretty usual, and there's no epitaph. So that is Stephen III, and it's time to rate him in this crazy, crazy story. Papatum infallium. So traditionally, Stephen III goes down as one of the weakest and worst popes of the 8th century. And I'm crediting Thomas Hodgkin and his book, Italy and Her Invaders, here for, for that quote. 
He is a weak man controlled by more powerful people around him. Sure is. However, more recent scholars like Jan T. Hallenbach argues that this should be reevaluated, and she argues that he is a capable cleric who served as a successful papal diplomat before he was pope. And there likely wasn't this just sudden immediate shift to totally weak when he was elected, so casting him as weak probably needs reevaluation. We can see how we feel about his personal rule, but things for the papacy as a whole, the Lateran Council restricted secular intervention in the papal elections. Even though we know this won't hold and this has some bad secular impact, as far as the church goes, this is good. And this sets a standard to protect the clerical bureaucracy and eliminates threats of secular antipopes to be put in place. So that's pretty good. He resists iconoclasm. It's kind of a given by now. And Ravenna is kind of sorted out. There's some stuff. I can give him like a two. A two? A two seems fair. Yeah, I can, I can get on board with that. The restricting secular intervention in papal elections is a big one. And even though it doesn't hold uh, the fact that he tries really hard to make that happen, I'm going to give him a three. I'm not giving him points for anything else, not for iconoclasm, not for anything else. I'm not giving him any points for being a good ruler in his own behalf. I'm giving him three points purely for that. And that's it. So he'll get a five in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. Well, this is a discussion point because we have to decide how complicit we think he was in the blinding mutilation and killing of people after his election right we we've already covered that the liber pontificalis wants to place no blame with him or chris or serge it's perverted individuals who don't keep their eyes on god plague-ridden instigators of evil and blah 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 there is a possibility that he was yeah there is a possibility we don't have a Stephen the Third Twitter page to follow along on. <laughs> so I mean, true. We don't know what he said or how it could be contrived by its followers. That's a horrible standard that we're now judging on. By the way, hey. <laughs> oh boy. Had we done this discussion maybe December, it would have been different. It sure would have. We have to consider that at least. Some historians, like Horace Mann and Thomas Hodgkin, don't credit Stephen with much of anything. Did you say Horace Mann? Horace Mann! We have, <laughs> we have cited this man before in this podcast. I think last time you called him Horry Mann, and now Horace Mann. <laughs> Forever and now on, I will definitely say Horace K. Mann for your... That helps me way more. They think he wasn't responsible for any of the good stuff. He probably wasn't any, any more responsible for the bad stuff. Other people believe that he might have been a deliberately neutral party, like historian Gregor Ovius, who argues that he likely neither initiated or prevented the outbreak of violence, that it was probably, you know, Chris and Sarge. But there are other historians that argue that he had to play an active role, and to dismiss that to the more aggressive voices let him off the hook, like. Janty Hellenbeck, and Louis-Marie de Corminen. Those are points to consider. But one more thing to consider. We know for sure, we know for sure he played a role in the downfall of Chris and Serge. Definitely. We don't know why. We don't know if it was because he believed Paul the Farty too much, or, 
whatever else, but he outright betrays them. So there is points to be had in this category regardless. It's just how much. I want to give him a five. Five is good, yeah. Considering how awful the betrayal is of Chris and Serge, and that he clearly knew that they weren't just going to get away with exile, it makes me more likely to give him credit for the blindings and the mutilations and stuff that happened after his election. So I'm definitely going to meet you with a five. I'm just debating a six, but I think a five is good. So he will get a ten in Fructus Prohibitum. Secular Rye Impactum. This is not going to be a good category for him. There's a real and legitimate concern about the secular nobility in Italy, about, you know, having a voice and and having participation in that. And he took it away. Yeah, he straight up takes it away. Like, he doesn't even leave any room for clarity there. So it's great for the church. Continues to alienate the rest of the temporal world. There's actual chaos in the streets, right? I'm going to give you a quote from Thomas Noble in Republic of St. Peter. He says, In just a year, Rome had become a very different place. Violence had been used to elect three popes, and unspeakable brutalities had been visited upon the partisans of each successive loser. Such conduct must have gone far towards poisoning the atmosphere in the city. Not great. Relationships with the Franks suffered because of the vehement protests against the Lombard-Frank alliance and the marriage arrangement. And we're already seeing Charlemagne ignore the Pope. This is not great. This is not a good sign. And then, of course, the, the downfall of Chris and Serge. Did the Pope have to create deals with the Lombards to get out from under their influence? And then the Lombard king kicks him around. So, this is bad. It's like zero bad. Yeah, if we could give negative points for how bad this impact was. Uh, yeah, but that would mess up our scoring system so bad. Oh, I know. So I think it's got to be a zero for Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Let's see oh, what this man looks like. He looks like a golden retriever. Like a real sad one. Oh, yeah, there's definitely, like, a sadness about his face, for sure. It looked like somebody that he really cared for. I, I You know, this is going to be the mo- moment that Paul the Farty told him that Chris and Serge were, were trying to kill him. The song playing over this is just Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. Yes, yeah, he's just, like, so hurt by it. Yeah, it's it's something. I don't know, I can give him maybe, like, a four. A four? Okay, all right. Um, the expression is everything here. Like, you know, he's got like a, a reverse handlebar mustache going on. His beard is scraggly. His hair is like wingy. Like, it's all kind of all over the place. And I don't think it would score well if it weren't for the expression on his face. Yeah, I think about a four is right. So when we score that out, he's going to get a two for Facium Sanctus. I have one more image for you to look at, but there's really absolutely nothing special about this one. Ah, no, there isn't. Nondescript man in hand. That is what that is. Tempus Pontificus. August 7th of 768 to February 1st, 772. Four years and a score of one. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. So Stephen's not a saint, but it's not for lack of trying here. 
During the majority of the medieval period, Stephen definitely had a local cult of sainthood in Sicily, so he does appear in some Sicilian martyrologies with a feast day of February 1st. However, the attempt of the Sicilians to get him officially recognized as a saint has never amounted to anything, so he does not get the canon bonus point. If he were to be a saint, in this clear way of his cult being formed, he'd clearly be a patron saint of Sicily, along with Saint Agatha of the boob cakes. Let her have her boob cakes. Yeah, I think she kind of stands on her own with the boob cakes. We talked about her in quite detail in Patreon, and we will go to Sicily for the, the Feast of Saint Agatha one day. Yeah, I think she gets that one. So that brings us to his total score, which is, uh, oh, it's, uh, it's an 18. That's what it is. It's an 18. That's higher than expected. It is higher than expected, but he has done, like, the last pope to, to score less than him was Sicinius, and he lasted, like, a month. So, not great. Which sort of answers the question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. If you think he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough and has an impact enough for a papal bull? Nope. No, not a chance. Uh, there, there's no way. Uh, his reign is certainly very interesting. And he's one of those, well, like, it was crazy to research and it is certainly an entertaining story. I will talk about Chris and Serge more than him. That's exactly it. And that's the problem. That's why we can't give it to him just for having an interesting reign. So... Yeah, that that's a that's a no for Pope Stephen the Third. But we also have some thank yous to make. We have some patrons to absolve of their temporal punishments. So we'd like to say thank you to Lori Ankerson and Andy Bouchard. Ego te absolvo. And we'd like to thank Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for being our inspiration as always. And I'd like to thank Chris from the Age of Victoria podcast was always giving us a good shout out on Twitter. Every time. Thank you. Every second. I love it. I love every time I see it. I'm like, yay, because he's bringing people our way. So thank you very much, Chris. And thank you to all of you who are listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifaxwishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. And with that, we can say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.